It was written by Bud Green, Les Brown, and Ben Homer in 1944. The song was released in 1945, and it coincided with the return home of many GIs after the war in Europe was over. In fact, it became sort of an unofficial homecoming song for many, many veterans. Um, Doris Day recorded the song Sentimental Journey with Les Brown and his band of renown. Whatever happened to Les Brown and his band of renown? Apparently, they're not too renowned anymore. But still, uh, Les Brown and his band of renown recorded it. It became her first number one hit. Now, Doris Day, in case you don't know, is like the triple threat. She was a star of stage and screen and, uh, and music. She has had songs in a decade that has spanned eight dec- and a career that has spanned eight decades. She has had songs on the charts 460 weeks. That's a lot of weeks. That's a long time. Um, but it was Sentimental Journey that was her, number one, her first number one song, and it spent 23 weeks on the charts back in 1945. Um, like I said, uh, we're starting a new sermon series today called the Summer Concert Series. And like I said, last summer we did movie titles as sermon titles. This summer we're doing song titles as, uh, as sermon titles. And again, I want to thank our creative team for putting together the decorations. I think this really looks cool. And uh, for putting together the sermon graphic that you see up there. And uh, our creative team does some really good stuff. Um, Today we're talking about this song, Sentimental Journey. And again, the sermon titles have nothing, or the sermons have nothing to do with the actual songs themselves other than just providing a cool title. But here's some of the lyrics to Sentimental Journey. She sang, gonna take a sentimental journey, gonna set my heart at ease, gonna make a sentimental journey to renew old memories. How many of you have ever heard the song, Sentimental Journey? Okay, quite a few. All right, very good, very good. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty little song uh, that's uh, written back, like I said, in 1944. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, I was looking up the word sentimental and what does sentimental mean. And it's a feeling of n- nostalgia. It's a feeling of kind of taking a trip back in time and an emotional feeling of nostalgia. We love nostalgia, don't we? We love memories, the good old days, the golden years, the times when things were much more simple and and a whole lot better, right? We look at the world around us today, we watch the news, uh, we hear of these things going on all around the world and we think, man, if things could just be like the way they used to be, right? Right, yeah, it, it sure would be nice, you know, but at the same time, life does move on, things do progress, we have technology and things that change and and life is about change changes happen all the time we feel it in our own bodies the ways that we change if we never changed we'd all be infants being carried around by a bunch of other infants because we'd all be infants but our bodies do change from the time we're very very little to the time we get to be not so little Um, from being very very young to being not so very young and young at heart as they say well we're going to look at philippians chapter 3 today if you, have, if you can grab your Bible and turn to Philippians 3, we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul and the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. And Paul said in this passage of Scripture, Philippians 3, 1 through 14, basically he's saying, I'm not going to take a sentimental journey. In fact, his journey was far from sentimental. He's talking about a journey of faith 
and where he came from and how he got to where he was and what he was, <clears throat> excuse me, what he was looking forward to. So like I said, we're going to see how Paul didn't take a sentimental journey. Uh, grab your bulletin. On the back you find the HDO. You can fill in some blanks in just a few moments. I want to read from Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 as we begin. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 1 through 6, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Many of the people in Philippi were Gentile converts to Christianity. And there were also Jewish Christians in Philippi. And the Jewish Christians there, they were called Judaizers. And the reason was is they believed that for the Gentile converts to Christianity, for them to fully be the people of God, for them to fully be Christians, they had to become Jews first. And the way that one became a Jew in those days was to undergo the rite of circumcision. And that was the physical sign of God's people. And so the Judaizers were telling the Gentiles, you've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. You've got to become one of God's people before you can really be a true Christian. Paul is saying, no, 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 this is not the case. In fact, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Paul says, he says that you are not a Jew just because you are one outwardly, but rather circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Uh, I want to read from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul wrote, a man is not a Jew if he is one, only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, or the people of God, if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Paul says uh, that Christians are the true Israel, that followers of Jesus, people who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who have repented from sin, who have confessed their faith in Jesus and been baptized, that we are the true Israel. We are spiritual Israel. We are the true people of God. That God has called us his people. What a wonderful blessing to be the people of God. That God looks at you and he says, you are my people, you are my children. And it's not about rites, it's not about ritual, it's not about circumcision, but rather it is about being uh, part of God's family of faith and being part of God's family by faith, that it is through faith in Christ when we accept his offer of salvation that we are made a part of God's family. We are made to be God's people. Being, car, being God's people, like I said, it's not about rites and it's not about rituals, it's about putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And Paul says, look, you want to take a sentimental journey? You want to think that you've got it all together because you've been circumcised? He goes, let me tell you what. Let me take a sentimental journey with you here. Let me show you how, just how much I have it together. Let me show you how much, how qualified I am to be the people of God. And so he goes on this long list of his qualifications. He was circumcised on the eighth day as commanded by the Old Testament. In other words, he was not 
a convert to Judaism, but rather he was born a Jew. He was uh, a full uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. And he gives this long and impressive pedigree. He says that he was a Pharisee. Now, Christians, we hear the word Pharisee. We think about Jesus' dealings with the Pharisees in the Gospels. And we think, well, the Pharisees, well, they weren't very nice. And they persecuted Jesus and persecuted Christians. They couldn't be, they couldn't be considered to be very, very good people. But yet, in Paul's day, the Jews looked up to the Pharisees. They were models. They were pillars of the spiritual community. They were looked at as having it all together. In fact, that's what the Pharisees loved. They loved it, the fact that people looked at them and said, wow, look at Paul. He's re or actually, his name was Saul at the time. Look at Saul. He's got it all together. Look at Saul. He's so holy. He's so righteous. Look at Saul. He's so zealous for God. He's so zealous for God's word. He was devoted, he says, to maintaining the purity of the law. In, Gen in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul writes this about himself. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was zealous. You know, you hear that word zeal or you hear the word zealous. And we, it's not a word we use very much. But it's a word that, that means that to, to be really devoted to something, to be more than passionate. A lot of people are passionate about things. You know, you can be passionate about uh, a sports team. You can be passionate about your job. You can be passionate um, about uh, your car or, you know, your, your home or things like that. Passionate about your children. But to be zealous for something is to be like almost over the top. Uh, I think about like an athlete, like a, like a Michael Jordan who was zealous for competition that really drove him uh, was the desire to compete or Tiger Woods the same way the desire to compete some people are really zealous they have a real desire for their job uh, I mean all they can think about is their work all they can think about is getting to work and doing more work and working harder or some people are zealous for fame and fortune Right to be uh, really committed and driven by money to be driven by popularity there's all kinds of things that we can be zealous for. Paul, when he was Saul, was zealous for his faith. He was zealous for the, word, for the law of God. He was zealous for the traditions of the Jewish fathers. He was zealous for things of the past. So much so that he persecuted the church. And that uh, he, was, um, he was zealous so much that he put Christians in jail and he put Christians to death because he believed that they were doing the wrong things, that they were worshiping a false god. They didn't, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and he didn't believe that Jesus died for our sins and he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he believed that these Christians were worshiping a false god and he was so zealous for God's, for God's law that he believed that he was doing the right thing by taking Christians and throwing them in jail and putting them to death. You remember the story of, from the book of Acts about the stoning of Stephen, how Stephen was a, a righteous follower of Jesus. And what did Paul, Saul do? Saul had him stoned. And it's, the Bible says that he looked approvingly on his death. That's the kind of guy that Saul was. He was so passionate and zealous for the traditions of his fathers and so zealous for, for God's law that he went to the, to the uh, extreme of putting people to death for it. That doesn't seem right, does it? 
Well, some people, like I said, are passionate. Paul was zealous for the law. He persecuted those that he believed were breaking God's law. And he, was, he says that he was faultless, faultless with regards to keeping the law. Look at Philippians 3, 7, though. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The first blank on your outline this morning is Paul refused to focus on his past. He gives all these qualifications of why he deserves to be considered the Jew among Jew, Jews, the Hebrew among Hebrews, why he was considered to be um, uh, almost like a, a perfect Jew to the people of his days, and yet he says, everything that was to my credit, everything that was to my benefit, everything that made me look so good, my pedigree, my past... Everything in my past, I consider it now a loss. I consider it a loss compared to knowing Christ. Everything in his past, everything that he was, he considered a loss compared to knowing Christ in the present, to knowing Christ now. He was not taking a sentimental journey. It wasn't with feelings of nostalgia and emotional nostalgia that he looked back upon his past, that he looked at the past and said, oh, wow, man, those were really great times. When I was persecuting those Christians and stoning people and having them put to death, oh, it just brings back so many fond memories. No, it was not a sentimental journey at all. You know, there are some times in our lives that we want to focus on the past, that we think back to the way things used to be, and there are things that we want to remember. There are good things that we want to remember. And then there are good things, that not so good things that we want to remember. You know, we want to remember the good old days because things were so much better way back then. Were they really though? Or did we just did not, maybe we just didn't talk about things. We didn't just say, we didn't uh, talk about the things that get talked about today. But they were still going on then. Just like they're still going on today. The book of uh, Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Everything that has been will always be. Everything that has been done will continue to be done. Like I said, just didn't talk about it. But now there is no shame. And everything is talked about in the open. Like there's, like there's nothing wrong with it. You know, sometimes we want to remember the good things. We remember the good old days and how things were. But there are also ways that some things that we don't want to forget. There are bad things that happen to us that we don't want to forget and we don't want to let go of. Someone did something to us and, and we want to hold on to that memory so that we won't get burned again. So we take that less than sentimental journey, but it's still we're beholden to our past. You see, the problem is, is that the past has passed. Taking a sentimental journey means that we get stuck in the past. Sometimes it means that we're, we're completely uh, stuck in the way things used to be and we can't communicate the gospel to, to people today because we think, well, it should be like it was back then and, and, well, society should just adapt to us. But you know what? The fact is is that things change. Things change all around us. Some things change in good ways. Some things change in not so good ways. We have a sign in our office. It's one of the, the most poignant statements I've ever read and it says um, that hardship is having to do without the things your grandparents never heard of. Imagine living in today's age without a cell phone. People used to do that, you know, not so long ago. But could you imagine living without a cell phone? And some of you are like, well, I don't have a cell phone. How do, how do you get in touch with people? The pay, remember pay phones? Pay phones are a thing of the past. It's because everybody's got a cell phone pretty much. Or imagine trying to live without the internet. 
Could you imagine what life was like before Google? And some of you younger people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. The kids downstairs, the ones that we sent out of here earlier, <laughs> they will never live in a world without Google. It's, it's, it's just the world that, I mean, my little guy knows how to YouTube. YouTube, six years old, knows how to YouTube. 20 years ago, we never heard of YouTube. YouTube, you thought something, something was, you know, wrong with you if you said the word YouTube. What are you talking about, YouTube? Things change. Society progresses. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. But if we as Christians, if we as a church say, you know what, we're not going to change. We're not going to move forward. We're not going to progress. We're just, we want things to be the way they used to be. Society will look at us and culture will look at us and people outside of the church, not necessarily first Christian church, but people who don't believe in Jesus at all will look at us as though we're irrelevant. They will say, you can't communicate to me. Now, don't get me wrong. The message of the gospel is timeless. The message of how Jesus came and he died for our sins on a Roman cross, that message is timeless. And it must be, uh, it must never, ever change that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he is the only way to be saved. Society may say, nope, nope. There are many roads that lead to God. There are many paths that lead to salvation. And they're wrong. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is still the word of God. Through 2,000 years, it is still the word of God. And that doesn't change. The message of the Bible doesn't change. The message of the gospel doesn't change. But our methodology in presenting it has to change. We have to be able to communicate to people where they are. After all, somebody communicated to you one day where you were. They came and they told you about Jesus. It may have been a Sunday school teacher. It may have been in a small group Bible study. It may have been a one-on-one. It may have been somebody knocked on your door. It may have been a coworker shared their faith with you, but they met you where you were. For us to sit here and go, well, they just got to come in here and hear it. No, we got to go to them. We have to go to people and tell them about God's love. We have to go to people and tell them that Jesus died for them. And we've got to communicate it in a way that people can understand. We've got to communicate a timeless message in a timely fashion. If not, like I said, if we don't change our methodology, if we try to do things the way they were 60, 70, 80, 90, 110, 120, 150, to even 2,000 years ago, if we try and do things the way that they used to do them, we will be ignored and seen as irrelevant. And too long we have, for too long we have ignored the changes in the world around us. And we have just kind of like buried our heads in the sand and just said, well, we're just going to ignore society, ignore the culture, and, um, you know, we're just going to let them do their own thing, and we're just going to hunker down here in our little church building. We're going we're gonna to bunker down together. We're going to circle the wagons and just kind of ignore what's going on out there. And yet, when we do that, people die and they don't go to heaven. If we ignore the world around us, we are literally saying, and, and don't hear me wrong, okay, don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not, I'm not cussing at you, I promise. But when we say to the world, when we ignore the world and we just say, you know what, we, we don't have anything to say to you, we are literally saying, to hell with you. And we can't do that. We can't. We have to adapt the methodologies that we use to communicate a timeless message so that people will hear about Jesus and they'll put their faith and trust in him and they can go to heaven. Because that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. 
is helping people find Jesus so that they can go to heaven. But when we don't do that, when we just kind of bury our heads in the sand, or when we say, nope, you gotta, you got to come to us, and, and you got to do things the way we say that you got to do them, we, you got to do things the, you know, the old-fashioned way, it's kind of like, maybe like you have like a, a crazy old man at the end of your street who's just always you know, railing about the end of the world. The end of the world's coming, the end of the world's coming. And everybody's like, oh, that's old Gomer. He's harmless. That's how people view the church. And when, when, we, don't, when we don't change the way we do things in order to try and reach new people, when we, when we say, nope, got to do things uh, the way that we did them 100 years ago, people look at us and go, Oh, that's just the church. They're harmless. They don't have anything to say to us today. And that's sad. Because we have the greatest message in the history of the world. We have the greatest message, the most life-changing message. And if we will carefully, carefully explain it to people in a way that makes sense to their lives today, they will, they will say, okay, I want to hear more about this. I want to hear more about this Jesus because it sounds like he, he has something to say to me today. But when we don't adapt and when we don't change, people are like, oh, that's just the church. They're harmless. We're not harmless. We have a powerful message from a powerful God. And it's a powerful message of a powerful love that will change the world. So we can, we can tell people, hey, we want to help you get to heaven. We can tell people, we want you to get there. Or you know what? We can, uh, we can ignore people and just you know, let, them, let them die in their sins. So we either take a sentimental journey and say, this is the way things used to be and this is the way they're always going to be and we're never going to change. Or we can uh, take a sentimental, or we can, we can say, you know what? We're going to adopt our new methodologies. We're going to learn new strategies to communicate to people to where they are today. You know, we need to think about where people are today so that we can communicate to them where they are today. We can't stick our head in the sand. You know, and this goes not just for us as a church, it goes for our lives as well, for us as individuals, because sometimes we take a sentimental journey that, like I said, it's not too sentimental. We hold on to the past. We hold on to bitterness. We hold on to unforgiveness. We hold on to those memories of how somebody hurt us. He said something to me that really broke my heart. She did something to me that really, really hurt. My mom did this to me. My husband did this to me. My children did this to me. And we hold on to those things and we don't let them go. And like I said, it's a less than sentimental journey, but it's a journey to the past, what's uh, all the same. And we hold on to those things. And we say, I'm never going to forgive her or I'm never going to forgive him. And we hold on to them and we're stuck in the past and we're held captive by it and the bitterness within us grows and we become ugly. It's not about the past, folks. It's not about the past. The second blank on your outline is that Paul refused to focus on himself. Look at verses 7 through 11. 
We're going to read 7 again and then read through on to 11. But whatever is to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the Uh, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You look at Paul's sentimental journey that he refuses to take. You look at his past, and you know what he says about it? He says, what does he say? He says it's rubbish, rubbish. I want to read to you from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology about this word that he uses, this Greek word called skubalon. You say skubalon? Wow, that was really pathetic. <laughs> I know it's a word you've never heard before, but can you say scubalon? Scubalon. This is what it says. In secular Greek, this depressing word means rubbish and muck of many kinds. Excrement, rotten food, bits left at a meal as not worth eating, a rotting corpse. Nastiness and decay are the constant elements of its meaning. It is a coarse Ugly, violent word implying worthlessness, uselessness, and repulsiveness. Paul says that all this stuff in my past is utter and complete garbage compared to knowing Jesus now. Everything that I thought was to my benefit, everything that I thought made me one of God's people is nothing. It is trash compared to knowing Jesus now that everything is about knowing christ that christ is the most important thing and this is how paul describes he used this word scubalon to describe everything up in his life in his life up until the time that he found jesus or jesus found him everything was worthless except for christ so how do you feel about yourself How do you feel about your life? Is Jesus the most important thing in your life? You know, sometimes we want to take a sentimental journey. We want to go back in time before we became a Christian. And we think, man, things were so much better then. I didn't have to get up early on a Sunday morning to go to church. I didn't hang around with all these Christian people who never want to have any fun. I used to have fun. Anybody ever said that? Don't raise your hand. We used to have so much fun before we had to start going to church. And and we take this sentimental journey back to the way things used to be. Or at least the memories we think we have. I read this great story about this little old man, little old lady, and, and the little old man moved into a an elder, uh, like a retirement village, and uh, he meets this lovely uh, lady, and they start dating and courting, and that's what they used to call it. They start courting, and so they're uh, they're getting to know each other, and uh, he's falling in love with her, and she's falling in love with him, and finally one day he gets up the gumption. They used to call it that too. He gets up the gumption to ask her to marry him, and he proposes to her. He goes to bed that night, wakes up the next morning, goes, man, I don't remember what she said. I don't remember if she said yes. So he goes to her and says, honey, do you remember me proposing to you last night? She said, yeah. What do I? She said, I think I do. What did I say? He's like, I don't remember. She said, I think I said yes. I remember somebody proposing to me. I just can't remember if it was you or not. Our memories betray us, right? 
But sometimes we think that things used to be so much better than they are and we forget what Jesus has done for us and how Jesus has transformed our lives, how Jesus has transformed our future, how he has transformed our present and how he has changed us from our past. We take this journey of sentimentality, we take this journey of nostalgia and think, man, things used to be so much better. You know what we sound like? We sound like the Israelites wandering in the desert after being uh, held captive in Egypt for, for centuries. And what do they say? Oh, things were so much better in Egypt back when we were slaves. Do you remember? Could you imagine this? You know, things were so much better back when we were making bricks without straw. Oh, in the hot Egyptian sun. Oh, do you remember the times when they were beating us? I mean, they had those whips and they were just beating us. And oh, that was just so great. It's so much better than being out here in the wilderness where God feeds us and takes care of us every day. But we get like that. We think, oh, things were so much better back then and things are so hard now. Why does it have to be so hard? And so we take, like I said, this sentimental journey back to the past and we forget what God has done for us. When we get so focused on ourselves, we lose sight of what is most important. And what is most important is the relationship with Jesus. Why is that most important? Because it's the only thing that lasts for eternity. Our relationship with Christ will never end. That when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, it is the beginning of a relationship that will never, ever, 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 end. It will go on forever and ever and ever. This relationship that we enter into Christ, not even, the Bible says, not even death can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. It will never end. And one day we will stand before God and we will see him face to face and we will see Jesus face to face and we will be together with him forever in heaven. Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says. This is beautiful. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even think about how great heaven is going to be. No one's ever seen it. No ears ever even heard of how wonderful it's going to be. And no mind can even comprehend how awesome heaven is going to be. But God has prepared it for you and for me and for all of us. God has prepared a wonderful place, an amazing place just for us. And it's never going to end. And it's never going to stop. And it starts when we enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ. So don't miss this, okay? Paul says that everything else, besides a relationship with Jesus, everything else is garbage compared to knowing Christ, compared to having a relationship with Jesus. So don't get so stuck in your past. Don't get so stuck on a sentimental journey that you say, you know what, this Christianity stuff just isn't worth it. And I'm going back to the way things used to be. We sing a song sometimes. I have decided to follow Jesus. What does it say? No turning back. No turning back. No matter how attractive things may have been in the past, no matter how much fun we think we were having, it's nothing. It's garbage. It's trash compared to knowing Jesus now. So don't give up your relationship with Jesus now and jeopardize your future. The last blank on your outline, Paul didn't focus on his past and he didn't focus on himself, but Paul instead focused on the future. 
And it is a glorious future. Look at verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, for God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He didn't focus on the past. He didn't focus on himself and his qualifications and his life. He focused on the future. And it is a glorious future. Like I said earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. It is a glorious future that God has planned for us. It is a, an amazing future that is worth pressing on toward. It is an amazing... We can't even conceive of this glorious hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's more than just a wish. It's more than a wish from a genie. We rub a lamp and get three wishes. It's better than that. It's more than a little cricket singing on your, on your shoulder. More than a wish upon a star. It's more than a dream. But it is a reality. The Greek word for hope literally means a confident expectation. A confident expectation. Something that you can look forward to with the expectation that it is exactly, it is going to happen. It will happen. It is a rock-solid guarantee based upon Jesus' offer of salvation made at the cross. So we need to focus less on our past, and we need to press on toward the future that God has for us in heaven with Him. Paul talks about how he presses on to win the race, to win the prize. It's like running a race. It's like running a race And there is a goal, there is a finish line, there is a prize to be run for, that we can run for the prize. So he says, run for this prize, don't give up. If you trip and fall, get back up and keep on running. If you you get tired, keep on running, keep on pressing on, keep going forward. You know the problem with this? Is that some people are running the race backwards. They're running like this. I'm not going to do it because I'm going to trip and fall, I know I am. But they're keeping their eyes on the past. And first of all, you don't go very fast, and you don't go very far, and you trip a lot more easily. But if you have, if you have your eyes focused on the past, if you've got that sentimental eyes looking back towards the past, then you've lost sight of the future. And the future is so much better than the past could ever be. They can't see where they're going. People who are running backwards can't see where they're going because uh, of where they've been and the way things used to be. This is exactly what Paul says not to do. The author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is not in the past. Jesus is in the future. So let us turn around and focus on the future and where we're going rather than on where we've been. Jesus is not coming in the past. He is coming in the future. The Australian coat of arms is an interesting one. There's two native Australian animals that really appeal to the the ideas that the forefathers of Australia had in mind. It's a kangaroo and an emu. Do you know what is interesting about the kangaroo and the emu? They can't go backwards. The emu has three toes on on its claw, and if it tries to go backwards, it trips and falls every time. The kangaroo's large tail... Is so heavy that it can't go backwards. So if you're a kangaroo or an emu, there's only one way to go, and that's forward. There is no going backwards if you're a kangaroo 
or an emu. You know, memories are wonderful reminders of days gone by. Memories are great. Some of them are very, very fond. I think about growing up around the dinner table and and wonderful memories that we had then. And you know, we make new ones. We make new ones as well. But you know what? Our memories are in the past and we are living in the present looking for a glorious future. So don't be imprisoned by your past. Don't be imprisoned by your past. Do not be captive to your failures in the past because those failures are forgiven. The hurts and pains of yesterday, those things that we hold on to, we need to let go of those things in the past and instead become a forgiver. And don't pine for days gone by. Don't pine for days gone by because they won't come back. Instead, let us focus on the future. I want to close by reading from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting uh, in verse 13, the second half of verse 13. Paul writes, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. One of the signs of becoming a mature follower of Jesus is that we forget what is behind and we press on toward the future. Press on toward the prize. My challenge for you this week is to begin that process of letting go of the past and forgetting the past and pressing on toward the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it is hard. It is so hard to think about the future sometimes. It is so hard to press on when we seem to be imprisoned by our past. God, we want to take that sentimental journey to the way things used to be, to the way life used to be. But yet things are changing all around us at a, at a rapid pace. And God, we need to be able to communicate the timeless message of the gospel to the people in our time. Help us, Father, to let go of the past instead of being imprisoned by it. And help us to press on to the future, to overcome the obstacles, even the obstacles in our past, the things that hold us down and chain us down. Help us to break free from these shackles so that we might run to the future and run to the prize that you have for us. We thank you, God, for the story of Paul and how he forgot what was behind and pressed on to the future. May we do the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.